This podcast is proudly brought to you by Sky Racing and Ingress, number one in its field. In talking to Colin Little on the podcast recently, the name of Danny Brereton came up more than once. Cole spoke in glowing terms of Danny as a horseman and a bloke, which prompted me to make contact with the man himself. Almost nine years have passed since Danny Brereton's career was terminated by a terrible fall from Marquis Flyer in a race at Mooney Valley. His injury list was horrific. Severe spinal cord damage, a punctured lung, a hairline neck fracture, every rib was broken and one of them actually ruptured the aorta. His vital signs shut down twice before he reached the Royal Melbourne Hospital and the situation was touch and go. A short time later, his wife Debbie, his late mother Colleen and dad Terry were with him when a professor of neurosurgery told him that he'd never walk again. Today, Danny Brereton walks with difficulty. He drives a car, he goes to the local shopping centre, he's even been on a horse a few times. I'm tickle pink that he's agreed to tell his story on our podcast. Danny Brereton, it's a delight to catch up, mate. Thank you for joining us. Morning, John. Yeah, it's, uh, it's great to be here, to be honest. <laughs> well, Dan, let's see what you're doing currently. You've always been a good judge of form. Very few jockeys in Victoria in your day had a better idea of race form than you did. Have you still got that skill? Well, yeah, I still follow the races, and um, I, uh, apart from doing, still doing a lot of re- rehabilitation, John, I uh, you know, dabble in um, the, the punting side of things. I uh, have a little bit of a, a little, you know, a little system, a little way of uh, betting and doing form and keeping my eye. I teach my interest in the industry still, mm. and um, yeah, so it's, it also pays some bills too. <laughs> <laughs> Good on you. And you watch a lot of racing too, right through the week. Yeah, I do. I keep my eye on that, and I've also um, retained uh, a few, uh, a couple of very good friends uh, overseas where I rode. Uh, so I've got my eye out for horses um, that uh, that might might be interested in buying for overseas. So I do a little bit of that, but not not a lot. But um, I've only got a couple of very good good friends that I, I really deal with. You know. Yep. Well, Danny, after that fall, as if you didn't have enough problems. The first thing they had to address was the burst aorta. So your first operation was heart surgery. Apparently so. I, uh, luckily enough, I should say, I, I also suffered a brain a brain um, injury, a brain bleed, they called it, but I was, I was unconscious. Um, I don't remember a lot of it all. I remember waking up in the, in the ambulance at some stage um, and they said your back's broken or something like that. I, I can't remember yeah. what it was, but I can remember grabbing hold of a, a hook in the in the ambulance and trying to to sit myself up. And after that, I was um, I was gone. I was gone again. I I don't know what happened, but they said that um, I'd lost uh, my vital signs twice of, of life. Mm. So it's not it's very blurry the first week. I don't remember much at all. I was in ICU for a week. And um, once I got out of ICU, I was sat up in a bed. I didn't really know what was going on, to be honest. But they, they had me on some pretty good uh, drugs, I think. Uh, you had the heart surgery and then came the spinal surgery. 
And then after that, the professor of neurology came into your room and gave you that devastating verdict. Do they mean to be that blunt? I, I sort of, um, it was hard to, it was, a hard, it was a very hard thing what happened that day, um, that morning it was. Uh, the morning my parents were there and, um, and basically the professor none it was and he brought out a big whiteboard and he explained that he went through all this damage of me and all this and blah, 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 and he was going on. The good news is we think you're going to survive. Oh. I thought, that's handy, that's handy enough. Mm, thanks, and, uh, thanks Professor. Yeah, we fixed up the aorta and we put back your, your back's been put back together again. Mm. I said, all right, okay. But I'm, I've had these funny feelings and I couldn't really, I, I didn't know whether the drugs were stopping me moving, but I couldn't really, I got a tingling in my feet, but I couldn't feel much more than that. Mm. And um, he just pointed the, pointed out what the spinal cord was, the vertebrae, things like that. And um, then he said, well, that's what you've done to your vertebrae, your, your, your spinal cord, you've, you've crushed it to a ribbon at, T six and T seven, yeah, and that was that was just to me that was just um, yeah. So what does that mean? And um, he said, well, that means you probably won't get out of bed on your own again. Mm. And that took a bit to sink in. Yeah, and I said, what do you mean? Well, walk. He said, no, you you'll never walk again. Mm. And to be honest, it's uh, it's harder now saying it than yeah. at the time because. At the time, I was on these drugs, and I thought, well, that doesn't matter. I, oh, I, I can do all sorts of things from a wheelchair, and I was, I was mm. sort of very upbeat, you know, and um, yeah. but I think there was more of the drugs they had me on than the um, than the way I was feeling at the time, you know? Mm-hmm. It takes a fair bit to sink in, and um, I think they slowly bring you off these drugs, and um, then you realize that what you've got is it's not good. And it's, um, you have some very dark nights, put it that way. You have a simple but very effective way of describing the actual spinal injury. You were telling me on the phone during the week, and uh, this is the simplest way you can put it. Yeah. Um, well, they, they explained to me throughout my rehab, I went to another, I was in the Austin for, um, for another week and a half or two weeks doing simple rehab and they send you across the road to a place called Talbot House and it's the biggest rehabilitation place we have in Australia, I think. Mm. And um, like even people from Tasmania and South Australia, they fly there to be rehabilitated. Mm. And um, there they explain it to me, your, your spinal cord is like a 10-lane freeway mm. of um, messages from the brain to your toes. And um, at T six and T seven, I'd um, I hadn't I hadn't severed the spinal cord, which I was very lucky. It wasn't cut in half. Mm. It'd be like cutting an electric cord in half, mm. where the electricity can't just go go past. But what I'd done, I'd flattened it to a ribbon, and they call it an Asia score. I had an Asia score of uh, Asia B. Mm. Asia A is complete. Asia B is nearly complete, but you've still got some spinal cord hanging. Yeah together and um but they basically you don't walk with that it um they say you can't walk and uh but it's like a it's, it's spinal cord in the same floor. it's like a 10 lane highway mm. to your toes but i've run into a traffic jam that goes to about one and a half lanes at t6 and t7 which is t6 t7 is about chest height that's where i've flattened my spinal cord mm-hmm. and um 
So I'm, I'm running off. I've got cars that should be on a ten lane freeway. On uh, it um, going into one and a half, so I'm hitting a huge traffic jam. Yeah. During that rehabilitation period, you were very depressed by the fact that there was never any encouraging news. They told you nothing, and you really had trouble dealing with that. They basically got you, I think they conditioned you to be ready for the worst because that's the way it was looking. The worst was I was never going to walk again. And they seemed to know that. Yet in, the, in, in that same instance, I was still I was still not believing them and I didn't want to take it in. And um, I refused to believe it. And I used to sit at the night and I used to sit there with my thumb in front of my eye and lining it up with my big toe and I'd bend my thumb down. Mm. And then one night, is after many, many, like many, many weeks, mm. my um, my toe moved. Mm. So I couldn't wait to tell the doctor, look, I can move my toe. It's the furthest part from the injury and it can move. And he said, it doesn't matter if it moves, you're still not going to walk, son. Oh. And so I just kept doing rehab and rehab. And then, then I got my foot moving and my knee moved. So I told the, 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 the that same professor, he'd come around every, every few days and I'd say, look, my knee moved last night. I, I think I'm a chance of getting up. He said, the quicker you accept that you're not going to walk, the better you'll be. Oh. And I said, but my knee moves. And he said, well, move it for me now. Mm. And I couldn't. Yeah. And he said, look, the sooner you accept it, the better you'll be. But me being as pig-headed as I am, I wasn't accepting it. <laughs> and I, <laughs> You're an old jockey after all. <laughs> yeah. So I, uh, I knew a girl that had a very bad injury here called Lee Woodgate. Yeah. She was, um, at the time of her fall, she was Australia's first um, ladies jump jockey. Mm. And although she had a, 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 a uh, brain brain bleed, a very bad brain bleed, she couldn't walk for like six, seven, eight months or so. Mm. And she's up now jogging. I knew that. So I rung Lee up and she put me onto a guy called Gavin Williams. Mm. And um, he's renowned for getting people up and going. But the problem was he, he works at um, Epworth Hospital. From, yeah. He's re, re people from Epworth Hospital, and I'm stuck yeah. in the Austin system. Yeah, I see. Yeah. Yeah. So I gave him a call, and he snuck in and seen me, and he seen me moving my feet, and uh, he just said to me, he said, you only need your feet to walk with, Danny. <laughs> and I said, that's good to know. Mm. And um, he said, well, I think I'll get you up walking. Oh, and goodness me. The news was just like music to your ear. I couldn't believe it. So, Dan, this uh, was the first time you'd been given a ray of hope. It was a ray of hope, yeah. Mm. Um, The problem was I was stuck in a hospital. He couldn't work on me at though. Yeah. So then I had to um, get myself somehow. I had to get myself from the Talbot Austin system to the Epworth Hospital. And that in itself is not as easy as you think because I'm under work cover and work cover calls the shots for all your um, rehabilitation, and they pay all the bills and look after you. So to get from, I had to have doctors sign off on it, and I had to have a hospital that would accept a spinal cord injured person, which was Epworth. And um, at the time, I, well, I was, I, I wrote, you mentioned before, I wrote a lot for Colin Little, mm. and he's a great friend and owner was uh, Rod Fitzroy, mm. who happened to sit on the board of... Um, Epworth, and he um, he does some very good things to uh, help 
moved me across to Epworth so I could be under this guy, Gavin Williams, which basically saved me, I think, saved me, or got me up walking, I think, because I still think that a lot of people out there, John, that give up hope, even though they've probably got the ability they might be able to walk, but they give up hope because you're told that every day. Mm. That's just my thoughts on, on the thing. I, I, I'm not a doctor. I can't really... No. You know, I can't really say that, but that's my thoughts on it or what I've experienced. But this man, and, uh, Gavin Williams, Danny, who came into yeah. your life uh, belatedly, made all the difference. He uh, he encouraged you. Ah, oh, he was just completely different. Where I was sitting around the, the Austin Hospital for seven days a week in my bed and I'd get 45 minutes of physio. Um, Gavin got me to the Epworth and I was... I never got to sit in the bed much. I was doing four hours of physio every day until I was just physically and mentally fatigued. And that was Saturdays and Sundays as well. And within a month, um, it was, well, it was probably five months after the accident, but within a month, he had me walking from my room across a road to another rehab place on a walking frame, which was, to me, was, well, basically, I, the day I did it, I cried. I couldn't well, believe it. Of course. As soon as you were back home, you got yourself to the famous Brighton Sea Baths. Now, this is a place yes. where you felt happy and safe uh, because when you were an apprentice jockey, you'd go there quite often to use their saunas, and uh, mm -hmm. it, it was a haven for you, wasn't it? You just You felt good at the Brighton Baths. That's right, John. Yeah, I, uh, it's possibly Melbourne's best kept secret. It's a, it's a place, uh, they have a sauna right on the water. So it's a jockey's, jockey's paradise. You'd be sitting in a sauna losing a weight and you can jump into the ocean anytime you want, sort of thing. Mm. And, um, my theory there was uh, if I could get back there and get in the water, I can walk, walk in the water with no aids mm. and also have the, um, the current and the different days of a calm day and a rough day. So, the ways of be throwing you around and unbalancing you so you have to get up again and you never get hurt. So the problem with rehabs were they, they're frightened of you hurting yourself and falling all the time. So I thought I could rehab myself there mm. and um, the waves would do it, the, the, the water would do it. You know, it, it's hard to walk against waves pushing you over and things like that. Then I progressed to the sand where I could walk without sticks and if I fell over, it just didn't matter. I might get mm. two steps out with no walking sticks, and then I'd fall onto the soft sand. So it it didn't matter. And I, and I gradually got to the stage where I could walk up and down with, with no sticks at all. Mm. Um, I'd have a couple of falls, though. But, you know, I could go 50 metres and then, then 100 metres and things like that. Mm. And well, that's what I'm walking on, working on now, John, is, is actually walking without any aids. And that's, mm. It's taking a long time, but I'm slowly getting there. You've confounded several doctors by walking into their rooms, uh, albeit on the sticks, but you've been able to get there under your own steam. And a couple of those doctors have told you, that, in total amazement, that you simply shouldn't be walking. That's right. I um, I had another friend that uh, gave me, passed me the number of a very famous doctor in Australia some call him controversial, but I think he's possibly the best neuro doctor in the world. 
a guy called Dr. Charlie Teo in Sydney. Mm. He's based at uh, Royal, the hospital at Royal Randwick. I forget its name. The mm. hospital right above the Randwick yep. base course. The Prince of Wales. That's it, the Prince of Wales. Mm. And um, I got myself on a plane. Um, a guy down here, a reporter down here actually helped me, uh, Matty Stewart, and uh, we went up and seen Dr. Teo. And um, I wanted him to look over my charts and my uh, x-rays and all that. And mm. So I got up to his rooms and um, went in there and he, he looked at my MRIs and just said, how did you get here? And I sort of walked up on my crutches. And he said, well, the only thing I can say is you shouldn't be using, you should be using a wheelchair. You shouldn't be walking at all. Yeah. I said, well, that's good, but how can you help me? Mm. And he said, I can't. Yeah. <laughs> he said, and that's, that's where I'm stuck now. No one can help me. I can only help myself because yeah. I'm stuck in no man's land. But Danny, what is your explanation? Why. why do you think this is, has happened? Uh, yeah, I don't what, know. What's your take on it? Just the power My, of the mind. Well, people people want to say because you're an athlete and because you're this and because you're that. It's it's not. It's definitely not that because I can tell you now there's no person in the world that wants to spend the rest of their life in a wheelchair. Mm. Um, it's not that. I just feel that they're just quick to write off. There's obviously enough messages going through because everything in my body works. It just works differently. Mm. Um, so it's obviously, although the, the spinal cord is flattened, and it's like a ribbon at the um, T6, T7 junction, um, there's enough messages going through to make my feet move. And um, I've got enough uh, glute muscle working and enough quad muscles to hold me vertical and um, I don't know the doctors can't tell me why no one can tell me why um, and, and I'm amazed they haven't done any tests on me to find out why to be honest mm. it may help others I don't know you know Dan can I get you to stand by there for a moment whilst we clear sure. a commitment on the podcast back with Danny Brereton in one moment the completion of the Great Southern Sale in Melbourne brought down the curtain on a spectacular sales season for Inglis. In 2019, Inglis cleared an amazing 85% of all yearlings offered a Southern Hemisphere high. Inglis sold 19 of the 30 yearlings in Australia to make more than a million dollars, as well as the only two yearlings to sell for two million or more. Inglis graduates have won 20 individual Group 1 races for the season so far. Inglis ended the sales season as the Southern Hemisphere market leader. Entries for the classic Melbourne Premier, Australian Easter, Melbourne Gold and Scone Yearling sales will be open in early July. You'll find details and entry forms at inglis.com.au. Well, Dan, if you don't mind, I'd like to go right back over your wonderful life in racing. Your dad, Terry, was a successful jockey, but early on he didn't want his son to follow in his footsteps. Yeah, my, my dad um, My dad was a heavyweight jockey, so he um, he started in Brisbane. He was a Brisbane um, Brisbane boy, and um, he was apprenticed to, um, I think, the guy there. He ended up a steward, Morgan, I think it was. Yeah, Clive. And Clive Morgan. Clive Morgan. He was apprenticed to Clive Morgan. Mm. And he had a bit of success as an apprentice, and then um, he had the carvies, carver living up around the northern areas of Queensland and he came back and rode for for a, for a very good train up there, Tony Mazzalia. Mm. 
and um, and funny instances go that he got uh, twelve months disqualification with Tony Mazzaglia over the running of a horse. Mm. So with that, he felt his career was um, was uh, gone in Queensland and moved to Melbourne, and uh, hence where I was born. And I think through the the hardness of the profession and and the the wasting he had to go through and all that, he just didn't want me to have anything to do with horses. But um, so happened to be he bought a house in Epson, where Epson Racecourse was, and was I was uh, next door neighbour was Ian Saunders, mm. the great Ian Saunders. So I used to uh, jump the back fence, unbeknownst to my dad, and um, of after school and help around the stables and all that. And then I progressed to weekends, getting up early and going to you know, do the boxes of the morning and helping out Ian Saunders at the time when he had those great horses like All Shot there and Actinia and Natalie and all those. Mm. And um, then, then Ian, Skinny, everyone called him Skinny. He um, he got me riding the pony, and and uh, it was just great times. I was only probably nine, eight, nine years old, mm. and um, there was jockeys like Roy Higgins walking in and out, Harry White. There was Darby McCarthy and Paul Jarman and Rod Dawkins and all these guys. Mm. And I'm riding the pony to the track just with the horses, with those horses I'd ride work and. Unbeknownst to my father, he wouldn't dare let me ride a horse. But um, they, uh, you know, these guys were, were helping me, not teaching me to ride. And, and I can remember one day, um, Darby McCarthy saying to me, "Well, when are you going to ride around the track?" And I went, "I'm not allowed to. I can't do that. Dad, Dad, Dad will kill me." <laughs> he said, "He said your dad's in the sauna." I think Darby was making one of his comebacks. He had a very, he had quite a few comebacks, Darby. And um, he said, "Your dad's in the sauna. I've seen him go over there before." And I said, so what are you, he said, well, come around with me, I won't tell him. So that <laughs> began my first uh, experience in riding track work was with Darby McCarthy, which um, you couldn't buy that experience. No, and Darby, of course, had ridden Group 1 winners in Sydney. He'd ridden horses like Broker's Tip and Divide and Rule and many others. I think history Champion. probably has overlooked Darby's talents to some degree. Danny, but what a magnificent rider he was! He was an amazing man. He was uh, he for uh, I say he was an Aboriginal jockey. Um, he was the most fluent talking man you'd ever meet. Mm. Like he was like like he'd been to Harvard University. He just yes. spoke beautiful. Um, he, I think he even rode for the Queen, and mm. um, he was and a great rider and a great teacher. Darby, he was, he was fantastic to me. Many have forgotten that you were initially apprenticed to a man called Frank King at Caulfield, who had previously mentored Dale Short and Stan Aitken, and Darren Gouchy did his time also with Frank King. So he was uh, Melbourne's Theo Green there for a while, wasn't he? That's exactly right, and that's where my get my pig head in this come into it. I, I eventually got my father around to let me ride and be an apprentice. He said, uh, well, you'll be... And actually, I think, no, there's a guy a guy at um, Epson called John Hicks who used to um, be the main starter down here in Melbourne. He was friendly with Theo Green and he suggested to my father that he could get me in with Theo Green. Mm. And I, could have, I had an argument with my father. I said, no, I'm staying here. I'm going to Frank King. Because mm. he at the time had Spike Short and he'd Stan Aker had just finished the apprenticeship. So mm. they were the 
best to Melbourne. I thought, I'm staying, I'm staying here. I'll go to Caulfield to Frank King. And, um, which that happened. And I was lucky enough, I, my father made me finish school. I was probably one of the first apprentices at the time that, that was allowed to be done to. I finished school and I, the day I left school, I rode on the following Saturday mm. at Wood End Races. And, um, but the problem I got there was me and Frank King didn't really hit it off that well together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so my time there was bizarre. I think, I think I spent, uh, was nearly a year there, but we never hit it off, and um, and I moved on from there. Yeah, you rode in a large number of trials, didn't you? Before your first race ride, a huge number of trials. That's right, John. Yeah, I was uh, back in those days. You could, um, you know, there wasn't the OS and on right now where you you had that license for this and license for that. Where I was, I was ten and eleven, going to, to school, primary school, and I was riding in jump outs at Epsom. So by the time I got to Frank King as an apprentice, I'd already ridden in over uh, probably a hundred trials. So yeah, so really, I, I was ready to ride, and I was, I was like a bull in the gate. Yeah. But at, in saying that, also everyone was laughing at me because I was too big. You know, mm. you'd never make it. He's got no chance. And so I was only being a jockey to. Probably the shortcut to becoming a horse trainer. That was eventually that was my plan, but mm-hmm. I, I was in a rush to be a successful jockey. Mm. So, hence that's probably why I didn't hit off with Frank. I was I was in a yeah. such a rush to um, to get success that I probably wasn't listening to him too well. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, eventually your indentures were transferred to a man called Ray Martin at Epsom. He was a small team trainer. You tell me, Dan, never more than four or five horses in work. And you also tell me he was one of the best horsemen you've ever seen. Yes, he was. Uh, he was a great, great horse trainer. He never, never, like, no one has hardly heard of Ray Martin, but he trained maximum five horses, but usually had two or three. So, my uh, my decision to go to Ray was one, he was a great trainer, and two, it would free me up to ride work for other trainers at at Epsom. Um, but I can remember there one day we were, we were at the stables in the afternoon. We we're looking down the line of horses. There's five horses there, and they were they're all five 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 uh, five horses, five last start winners, mm. which I think is a great effort for any trainer, to be honest. Isn't it? Well, you're almost yeah. embarrassed to admit that you had 96 rides before your first winner came along. Mind you, there were 22 seconds thrown in there, and on two occasions. Okay. Your own dad beat you in photo finishes. That's right. It, uh, um, um, it didn't lose about 96 rides to ride a winner, but um, the roughest thing was my old man knocked me off twice in photo finishes. I couldn't believe he'd do that. But, um, <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, that, that happened twice. And um, But the 96 rides came very quick for me. I, I had 96 rides, I think it was like in three or four months. And back then... For apprentice to get that many rides that quick was, you know, it was a bit unusual. But mm. um, I was going everywhere, and lucky enough because my dad was a jockey, which helped. And I did know a lot of trainers at Epson and now in Caulfield. I was, you know, thrown on a lot of horses quickly, and um, uh, but I, I honestly didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> I, I thought I did, but I didn't know what I was doing. Well, that magical first winner was a horse called Fine with Me for trainer Kevin Curtin at a Kilmore meeting, and you've never forgotten it. 
No, that's right. Uh, fine with me, Tosca Curtin. Um, as that was another bonus of being at Caulfield. Another great man I rode for, and um, yes, that was. And, and and I must say that that horse. Um, it was a sit and steer job. I, I've got the photo at home. There's no other no, no other horse in the photo, mm. and I guarantee you there was a fourteen horse field, but you can't see another horse in the photo. Yeah, but um, it was a horse by, uh, by by Lloyd Williams, George Fru, and Tom Pettiano actually. Mm. So there's a three three big heavy hitters in it. <laughs> the occasion of your first city winner was a memorable one. In fact, you rode a double. One of them was a horse called All Silver in a race for apprentice jockeys, and Greg right. Mance put you on a horse on the day called Letter Turk to make it a double. That's right. Yes. Uh, well, my, my the, the mayor, my father, uh, actually set that horse. Set that horse. It was his horse. Actually, he rode it, mm. um, and he suggested to my boss at the time, Ray Martin, that he put it in the apprentice race at Sandown to give me my first winner in town. Mm. And uh, which Ray Julie did, and they put it in there. It was all set up for me to to, to canter around and win on. Um, but there's a trainer down here called Greg Mance, and um, Greg at the time had uh, had picked me up as his stable jockey. He was an owner trainer, but he, he had a lot of horses, and they had a ride for him in a uh, three-year-old um, open three-year-old race in the first or second race at Sandown. Mm. I knew nothing about the horse, and. Um, but it was back from the hundreds into tens, and mm. um, and Julie won. So it spoiled the party for my father, because he thought he was giving the first city winner. And, and and but also all silver won uh, later in the card as well. So yeah. my first my first city success was an actual double, which was it got me off to a good start. Your first serious injury came in the late nineteen seventies when a complicated leg break. Put you out for a long time, Dan. I think you were out close to eighteen months. Yeah, it was. Um, it was over a year. I was out for. I, I was in a barrier trial at Epsom, and um, one of those cones, those witches hats, they put out, it flicked across the front of the trial. My horse shied from it, slipped over, and I, I smashed both my uh, tibia and fibula. And I mm. sitting on the ground. I could see my foot pointing back towards my head. I thought I'd chop my leg off. It was only the job, I thought my jobber straps were holding my leg together. It was um, mm. quite horrific at the time. And um, and in that, that convalescence period, um, my boss, Ray Martin, gave up training. And when I was ready to come back to ride, he just said to me, I've signed your papers over to, to Bob Hoisted. Goodness and, me. Um, yeah. I sort of had no choice in the, in the matter. It was... Uh, Mm. It was it was a luck thing to be honest, um, John. And um, I walked into Bob Hoisted's stables, and at that time, fully knowing that um, he possibly had the greatest horses in Australia there at the time. All at once, what were they, Danny? What a, a galaxy Jeez. of stars he was training. It, well, that's a good way of putting it. Um, I never thought of it that way. It was a galaxy of stars. Like mm. the headline act was Manicato at the time. Like a, nearly every gallop Manicato went out for, I was. On the stable mate as a partner, and um, he had, he had, he had Manicato, he had uh, Rose of Kingston. I think she was a dual Oaks Derby winner, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, Spirit of Kingston, another Oaks winner. It was River Ruff was there, he had Demas there. Um, there was a horse called Mr. Ironclad, won the Rider Stakes, was there. Mm-hmm. Um, Ara won the Blue Diamond. Um, Demas. 
uh, gee, the list goes, John, the list just goes on and on. Oh, I, I, I put it on. I'm not doing it justice, uh, to be honest. He mm. he trained any good horse in Victoria. Bob Horsdale trained it. Yeah, he was a remarkable horseman, a very intense ah. character, uh, wasn't he? He lived and breathed his horses, and I doubt that uh, there's ever been a more dedicated horse trainer. I know there are plenty of dedicated and committed people out there, but this bloke slept with them. He was an amazing man, Bob, um, a very generous man. Um but I can remember, I can remember, like Morty Alec Epson was a small community there, and um, I can remember hobbling down the street one day on my crutches, and Bob ran into me in the street. And he said, "How are you going?" I said, oh, "I'm getting there slowly." And blah, blah, blah. And he said, "Well, how are you going for money?" And I said, oh, "I'm doing okay. I'm all right, Bob." But he just gave me two hundred dollars. He said, "Well, here you go. Put that in your in your kick." You know, mm-hmm. that's the sort of guy Bob was. Yeah. Money was money was for the people around him and um, his horses. That's all it was there for, and we'd. Um, if you work for Bob Hoistead, you just you work for the horses, and that was it. Like um, where a trainer would put two bales of hay in, Bob would put five bales of hay in the box, <laughs> and uh, it, it, was, it was ridiculous. The stage Bob went to, like uh, nearly every horse had its own strapper, and um, he wouldn't move out of his mentone stables, so he'd float them down on the Garrett and Griffiths commercial floating system to get all these horses to the track, and he he. Bob would have been a very, very wealthy man, but all the money he made from racing, he just threw back into his horses. It was just, mm. I've never seen anything like it. It was an amazing, amazing system, but he got amazing results too. Oh, he certainly did. Well, Dan, I'm glad we had the opportunity to pay tribute to the legendary Bob Hoisted, one of the all-time greats. And that brings part one of our interview to a close. I've just made uh, an executive decision. Danny, you're a two-parter. We'll be back shortly with part two. The recent Great Southern Sale at the beautifully renovated Oakland's Junction Complex was an outstanding success. The select weanlings offered on the first two days averaged over $32,000 with a clearance rate of almost 80%. 22 of them sold for $100,000 or more. The broodmares also enjoyed considerable increases across all key indicators. An average of 25,000 up 27%, a median of 8,000 up 45% and a gross of 5.1 million up 15%. Top of the market was again very strong with nine horses selling for $200,000 or more. Across four days of selling, the gross was almost 17.7 million up 11%. It's time for vendors to switch the attention to the 2020 yearling sales and entries will open in early July. Go to inglis.com.au.